today on EdgeFX. So we recognize land, this land particularly, as stolen land using stolen labor. What is land? Anthropologist Tanya Murray Lee, historian Rafael Marchese, and sociologist Monica White speak with Elizabeth Hennessy about the many histories and understandings of land, unearthing how land is at once a living being, a commodity, a scene of a crime, and much more. Recorded at University of Wisconsin-Madison in September 2019, this roundtable is a part of the Sawyer Seminar interrogating the Plantationocene, and in their conversation, they discuss their reactions to the term Plantationocene and whether that idea has proved productive or limiting for their own work. Good evening, everybody. My name is Elizabeth Hennessy. I'm an assistant professor here. I am in the History Department and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies, and on behalf of the organizers of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Sawyer Seminar on Interrogating the Plantation Scene. I'd like to welcome you to tonight's roundtable. I'd also like to acknowledge that we are meeting on the ancestral lands of the Ho-Chunk people who've lived here since time immemorial, but following the Treaty of 1832 were forcibly removed by our state and federal governments. May we pay respect to their elders, past and present, recognize and honor the resistance and the persistence of Ho-Chunk peoples and other Native American nations of Wisconsin in the face of acts of dispossession and also to remember the many legacies of displacement, migration, and settlement that have occurred on this land beneath our feet. Tonight's conversation is part of the Interrogating the Plantation Scene Seminar, which is an 18-month project aimed at coming to terms with the plantation as a transformational moment in human and natural history at a global scale. Thinking with the plantation scene, we aim to be attentive to structures of power embedded in imperial and capitalist formations, the erasure of certain forms of life and relationships, and enduring layers of history and legacies of plantation capitalism that persist manifested in acts of racialized violence, growing land alienation, and accelerated species loss. At the same time, the project also aims to make visible past and present refuges of resistance where different ways of being sustained by different economies and forms of knowledge have flourished. All the events of the seminar are made possible by the generous funding from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and its John E. Sawyer Seminars program, and on campus by the Center for the Humanities, the Holt Center for Science and Technology Studies, and the Nelson Institute Center for Culture, History, and Environment. So let me say a few words of introduction about our panelists. First is our own Monica White, who is Associate Professor of Environmental Justice in the Department of Community Environmental Sociology here at the Nelson Institute. Her research investigates black, Latinx, and indigenous grassroots organizations who are engaged in the development of sustainable community food systems as a strategy to respond to issues of hunger and food inaccessibility. Her book, Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance and the Black Freedom Movement, was just published in January. Next is Tanya Murray Lee, who's Professor of Anthropology and Canada Research Chair at the University of Toronto. She's done research in Indonesia since the 1990s on the politics of development programs that sought to improve local environmental management on indigeneity and the constitution of capitalist relations and on land grabs and labor regimes associated with plantation production. She's the author or editor of five books and is currently working on her sixth, The Collaborative Ethnography of Oil Palm Plantations in Indonesia. And last but not least is Rafael Marquese, who is Libre de Sante Professor of History at the Universidade de Sao Paulo, where he co-directs the Lab Mundi, the Laboratory of Studies on Brazil and the World System. He works on histories of slavery in the Atlantic world, particularly focusing on transnational economies of coffee plantations. He recently published the co-authored book Slavery and Politics, Brazil and Cuba, 1790-1850, to 
and is currently working on a comparative history of environment and slavery in Suriname and Saint-Domingue in the 18th century. And I want to begin with a question that I think might seem straightforward, but it's a question that Tanya posed in a recent essay, and that is, what is land? So I think it's important to clarify, because I think that most of us are accustomed to thinking of land as a kind of self-evident thing that can be divided into parcels, that can be owned as property, used as a resource. But Tanya's written land is a strange object. So each of you in your work pushes us to think beyond this way of thinking about land and instead to think of its social and material relationships. So could you each tell us a bit about how you understand what land is, how you approach land in your studies? I'm honored to be on this, uh, on this panel uh, with you all. I'm really, really grateful for this opportunity. I meditated on the question, what is land? And from African indigenous cultures, land is a living being. And to me, I also see it as, as sort of a scene of a crime, right? It's, it's a scene of a crime and a strategy of freedom and liberation. So we recognize land, this land particularly, as stolen land using stolen labor. And, and looking at our interactions and relationship with land has been one of extraction and not regeneration. And so the current political moment, the current environmental moment, uh, economic, like every indication of our society is fractured. And, and I would argue that some of that is because we do not see ourselves as part of an ecosystem. We see ourselves in control of. And so for me and the people that I work with, um, the uh, organizations that I work with really are trying to encourage us to pursue a more holistic, healthy relationship to land and one that, as the indigenous nation, seven years, seven generations, um, the implication of anything we do, making sure that we pass on the land better than it was when we found it. So land is it's sort of everything, as young people say. It's everything. And how we treat the land, I think, also has indication, uh, has indicators uh, how we treat each other. You know, I first started thinking about this question, what is land, you know, from, again, from a kind of uh, indigenous or fieldwork perspective. Because in the highlands of Sulawesi where I was working, um, there is no word for land. Um, there's a word for soil, one sort of material thing. And then the classification has to do always with people's relationship to actually to forests. So there's primary forest, which means no labor has been invested there. The secondary forest, which means someone once did that work of like clearing the huge trees in order to plant a garden. There's the current garden. You know, there's the just left behind garden. But there is no kind of abstract category land. And I was working in this area during a period in which that category emerged. And so seeing how the idea of land as an abstract object which can have a value, which can be bought and sold, which can be um, you know, treated in some respects like other forms of property was something I saw emerge, and that made me kind of reflect on it. But then I thought, well, actually, there's always work involved in producing this category land. And so I also looked at the work done by the World Bank and others in the context of the land grab where suddenly, you know, up popped this, well, not suddenly, it's not new, but this category uh, underutilized land. And apparently, according to them, half the world's potentially arable land is not used at all, and most of the rest is, quote, underutilized. So, so well, what kind of object is it, you know, in which one scale of value means proper 
utility versus like under, like under for whom, in what ways, you know, according to what metric. So that really alerted me to all the work it takes to produce land as an abstract object or what I wrote about in that paper, like, you know, to render it investable, the kind of thing you can speculate on in the stock market, right? That, that's not just there given. That's the outcome of a process. And that was the sort of thing I was trying to track. But in the last days, Liz, I was trying to figure out what questions would pop up in our discussion. And this was the very first question I was thinking about before getting against your, your question. So thank you for that. And I think I had no better answer for this question than Polanyi's words. How Polanyi. Which actually what Monica was just talking about as land, as a as a living being. And basically, for Polanyi, land is nature turned into commodity. And I think this is a very simple, elegant way to put what we are discussing. We are discussing nature. But nature that was turned into something else due to economic, social, uh, political relations, which we can call capitalism or, or, or market, market economy according to Polanyi. But during our conversation, and thinking especially on both works of Monica and, and Tanya, I'd like to, to put more on, on that and discussing in Polanyi's uh, terms, on, especially on, on his uh, kind of European diffusionism. So when he was, was trying to describe how land is turned into a commodity, he was paying attention only for to, to Europe, okay? And, and I think thinking of, I'm also advancing other, other discussions on plantation scene and so on. I think his argument is really good if we are able to reconceptualize what he was talking about originally, about Europe, and put his argument in a broader frame, thinking about the colonies. So I think we can uh, think about land being commodified in the first place in the world, in the colonial world, and not in the metropole, not in Europe. And, and for sure, we can find throughout history different labor markets, uh, land markets, sorry. So uh, every time that you have, Antonio's uh, work uh, also shows that, uh, every time that you have a market, uh, so selling and buying land in some place, okay, you can say that, well, you have a, a, a market on land. But it doesn't mean that land was commodified through this market. So here, I think uh, I also like to put that 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 point in our discussion uh, this evening. I think we should pay attention to uh, Fernando del critique of of Polony, in the sense that we you can see land markets throughout history, but without being capitalist land markets. So there's a difference between what is a market economy and capitalism. And and thinking about the plantation scene and. and on this specific topic, land. It's a good way uh, to think about the, the, uh, the, these questions. So that's uh, my, my opening. I was so nervous that I was asked to go first that I forgot something important that I, w I did want to share. So in, in thinking about land, I thought immediately about the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery. And so if we see land as living, but also um, in terms of um, the receptacle of blood, sweat, and tears of those who labor 
right? I, I think the words uh, on the website really illustrate some of what I'm talking about. The legacy of enslaved black people, people terrorized by lynching, African Americans humiliated by racial segregation and Jim Crow, and people of color burdened by contemporary presumptions of guilt and police violence. And if you're unfamiliar, they have captured the land, the soil, from various points of lynching and honor the legacies of those who were lynched uh, as, as important. And so as painful as this part of it is, and that's why I sort of talk about the scene, the scene of a crime, I also think that land um, is both a site and source of oppression and liberation. And in talking and thinking about how movements are using land today, I think it's important to hold space for both of those. I think I'll pick up on the on the idea of capitalist transformations and the violence involved in capitalist transformations. And so one of the motivations for the seminar series has been the rush of, of transnational land grabs, primarily for food um, and biofuel crops that's occurred over the last 10 years. And Tanya, your work on oil pump plantations engages directly with this. But of course, land grabs have a really long history. And the effects of capitalist investments on social material landscapes are a dominant theme of your work, Raphael. So I'm wondering, what are some of the specific ways that trans capitalist transformations are are reshaping landscapes and livelihoods? What is what is particularly about the capitalist market that changes to use Paul's frame? That's a really good question, and and I will try I will try to address talk a little bit of my current project on, on global history of coffee and slavery, and particularly in the making of coffee frontiers in the Americas. A good way eventually to uh, track these ways through which capitalist transformations associated with land grabs reshapes landscapes, according to our question, is to think about specific moments and how these specific moments operate in uh, given contexts. Okay? So, let's take, for instance, according to my, the, the, the subject that I'm dealing with, uh, what happened with coffee frontiers in the Americas in the indigenous populations that live in these areas before the coffee uh, arrives. You can identify at least four distinct uh, outcomes or, or, or processes. Take, for instance, what happened in the Caribbean, the indigenous Holocaust during the 16th century. So without that Holocaust, okay, it would be hard to have the Caribbean uh, slave plantation system built there in the 17th and 18th centuries. So that's one way dealing with history. But then, take a second moment, what happened in Pariba Valley in Brazil at the beginning of the 19th century. There was indigenous populations living there because of Portuguese colonialism. So due to the gold economy in the 18th century, okay, the Portuguese authorities negotiated with Indians to keep the Indians in the land in order to avoid uh, 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 smuggling, gold smuggling. Okay? And so uh, it was a policy of prohibited lands in order to avoid smugglers operating through these lands. And this policy was what allowed, during the 19th century, the land grab of these very lands for coffee. So it's another relationship. You have former colonialism that were uh, dealing with Indians to keep them in the land. And then in the second wave of expansion, you have to get them out of the land, okay? Third moment, what happened in the western lands of Sao Paulo, in this huge coffee boom of the late 19th, early 20th century, and this happened in lands that belonged to the Kaigang, so Indian communities, uh, nomadic Indian communities, 
that were living there since the beginning of the 18th century, and they were all also resistant. It was nomadic Indians that resisted uh, against the Guaranis that was submitted to the Jesuit uh, uh, missions in Paraguay during the 17th centuries. What happened with the Skygang is the classical story of extermination for land grab. Okay, so it's another outcome. Think about the fourth outcome. What happened in Guatemala at the end of the 19th century when you had to count off the Indians in order to produce coffee. But these Indians uh, uh, are not occupying the coffee lands, so they have to be engaged in order to produce uh, coffee. And what the Spaniards did was to recover a system that was uh, applied in the 16th century. So the mandamiento system in Guatemala is more or less what was the encomienda system in the 16th century. Long answer for a short point, okay? What is my point? We have to understand concretely in each spot how these relations uh, operated. So how land grabs reshapes landscapes. And there, there's no other way to do that instead of taking a close look of what's happening in each spot at each time, and you can have processes happening again, maybe in the same, with the same form, but with another content. So that's uh, how I will address this question. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with you about the kind of the very specific ways in which our land, labor, and capital are assembled in some sort of different configurations. I think in the kinds of plantation landscapes I've been working on in Asia, actually your opening comment that it's stolen, you said it very succinctly, stolen land using stolen labor. And I think in the you know Asian plantation context, it is this, because uh, you know it's very memorably described by scientists in Alatas as the myth of the lazy native. So the concept the kind of foundational concept for the plantation is the colonial notion that the natives on the spot are always deficient. They're lousy farmers, and that's why you have to take the land from them to utilize it efficiently and you know, fully uh, for the production of crops and profit. And they're also bad workers, which is why you have to bring in uh, migrants from elsewhere, whether they're indentured or under whatever conditions they're they're always migrants. They're never the natives on the spot. So from that point of view, a plantation is always theft. It's based on the assumption that the natives on the spot are poor farmers and poor workers and can therefore legitimately be swept out of the way so that a more efficient form of production, engaging more efficient kinds of workers, can take its place. So it is always theft, and I think that that kind of colonial notion is endemic in all contemporary plantations. You couldn't have a plantation unless you have the assumption that the natives on the spot can't do it. But what you actually find is that occludes the history in which the natives on the spot are often already doing it and often out-competing the plantation. But you have to misrecognize their productivity, their activity, their desire to be capitalist market subjects. You have to basically ignore whatever the natives are doing in order to sustain this premise that only a plantation can do the job. So it is theft. Wow, that's beautiful. This was a great, like, you know, the tag team between the three. I mean, you know, it's like this was very well done. I'm, I'm really grateful. 
I'm from Detroit, and that's where I earned my political stripes and was in Detroit during a very big controversial land grab of a land speculator and was the first person to to call the meeting in response to uh, communities that were negotiating and trying to figure out, like, there were so many ways that residents were trying to access available land in Detroit. Somebody with big dollars comes in and says, I want to buy this plot of land, and there were no expectations, no rules, no, you know, you know, there was no justice. So to me, things come down to justice, right? So um, thinking about the ways that um, community organizations were saying, you know, in order for me to get the lot next to my house, it, it costs so much more. I mean, it was just really a lot of red tape and a lot of the things that they were willing to ignore for this billionaire uh, ignored uh, the, co- the use of land for residents. And so one of the ways that capitalist, uh, capitalism transforms land grabs uh, and creates landscapes and livelihoods is exclusion, right? We talk about genocide and we talk about displacement and dispossession and disrespect. But I also think that the current climate crisis is indicating climate migrants who, to no fault of theirs, are forced into situations where, you know, here we have a catastrophic event. I get on the plane to escape the catastrophic event, and I am asked to, to, to remove myself, to, to disembark from, you know, I mean, it's just really, I mean, you know, and even listening to folks talk about whether or not water is a human right. And questioning water, access to clean land. I mean, you know, just environmentally, I just think that capitalism allows us to shape and create landscapes and livelihoods that are for the benefit of some, but detrimental to others, and it's catastrophic. And so I just I have often heard uh, folks in movements articulate the relationship that say to see ourselves as connected to land means we treat land differently. To use a capitalist frame, it means we pollute it, we exploit it, and we disregard the impact on our lives and landscapes. And I think that this uh, environmental justice sort of conversation becomes really critical in, in, in response to the ways that capitalism has transformed landscapes and, and climates. Great. I think that sets me up for my next question really well. I want to talk about responses to, to dispossession. Like Monica and Tanya, you both work directly with communities who, are, who have gone through these histories and I'm curious to know, what are their practices, like what's the labor of resistance that you have seen and what are communities doing to kind of push back against this? Well, it's an interesting question because in the, you know, the plantation expansion I'm currently examining, on the one hand, you know, social movements have been questioning plantation expansion for decades and you'd have to say they have sadly completely failed to stop it or slow it down. So although there's been decades of critique and resistance, it hasn't stopped the train. So whatever people are doing, it isn't working because this train is still going forward. You know, 15 million hectares now, 20 to 30 projected, um, half of that already leased to companies just not developed yet. So it's a massive, uh, there's no bigger agrarian transformation, maybe the Amazon at the moment. That's one thing. Um, So resisting it's a complex thing when you're up against a machine like that. There's another element which is complex, and that is that, you know, in every plantation transformation, some people benefit. 
it's not a uniform dispossession. So there's always winners and losers in this, and that is usually instrumentalized very deliberately by companies and government officials that want to secure the land, to fracture communities, set one group off against the other, promise jobs, promise benefits. This is absolutely routine and documented as part of the strategy. So this idea that you could have something like free, prior, and informed consent, you know, the nice uh, liberal notion, it assumes that there is a moment of decision at which an assembled community will decide something. Whereas actually these processes are far more insidious. You know, they, they take years, they buy a bit here, they buy off someone there, they fracture something else, there's a lot of uncertainty about what, where the plantation will be and who's going to get what. So basically there's never free or prior or informed. Like none of that actually happens in practice. So it's very, you know, that's a difficult kind of thing to resist. I think another sort of element of that that I've been quite interested in is, you know, this idea that land grabs happen slowly. So you know, the, the idea of a grab makes you think that the catastrophe is immediate and one-off. But what I've seen is that, you know, an initial frontier plantation all on its own, well, the local people might just be able to shuffle out of the way and they might even see some benefit because now they get a road, you know, because there has to be an infrastructure. But 30 years later, one plantation has become 10 and the land is now saturated. And so the people who initially could shuffle out the way are now squeezed into little tiny enclaves and have now become landless. But it took a generation. So where was the point in time at which this was actually experienced as a definitive dispossession? Right? Actually, it's often 30 years later. It's the second generation which now says, because of who knows what shenanigans, whatever our parents agreed to or who agreed to what, we don't know. But what we know is that we now have no possibility for farming future. But it wasn't so obvious to their ancestors. You know, when they signed it away, as one of the elders in my research site said, we thought our land was as big as the sea. You know, they couldn't imagine that it could end. And so they didn't hold on to it so tightly. Why would they? There's plenty of it, you know. If you're on a land frontier, land is not scarce. So I think this kind of intergenerational dynamic is, is part of what makes the concept of resistance a bit too simple. You know, like you fully understand in the moment the future that lies 30 years. No one understands these things. Another just last point on this is extent. Can you picture what 30,000 hectares looks like? No one can, right? So what is informed consent when you can't even imagine what kind of extent that looks like? And can you picture the meaning of a... 60-year lease. These are kind of quantities which are actually beyond even our imagination, and we have maps and whatnot, you know. Um, so just imagine, you know, someone is doesn't cannot really know what they are doing. To talk about land dispossession, I think I like your example as depressing, but but also recognizing that it's a market force. And I think to talk in a U.S. context about land dispossession and black farmers especially, to do so without also talking about the USDA 
and the ways that the USDA has uh, historically exacerbated and, and contributed to land dispossession for black farmers, I think, is a, is a necessary point. And I do see folks resisting. I see a history of resistance in as much as folks are thinking about two things. One, the idea that to own land is offensive, but to think about how we might care for land it's difficult in the capitalist system, but it is an idea. How can we steward land in a way that uh, isn't inconsistent with our morals and our values? Uh, but I also see as a strategy, historically, black folks who pulled their resources together um, to buy land, to share land, to share resources, and to live collectively and uh, cooperatively. So as a strategy, um, one of my dear friends, uh, Dara Cooper, who's at the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, she argues that individual land ownership makes you vulnerable, collective cooperative land ownership is a buffer, is at least a way for us to withstand some of, of the onslaught and um, as a strategy to uh, respond to collectively um, some of the, uh, the attacks against capacity to be in control of whatever land uh, we have access to. So the dispossession has to also include government entities that are accessories often with market that it, sometimes it gets lost. Simply like to thank both of you because I had a chance to read your books uh, because of this, this, this meeting and uh, I learned a lot so I will keep you that. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about the social politics of land because I think one of the things that comes to me comes out of all of your work is that it's really important to think about racial and ethnic politics to think about how we understand land right because this doesn't just happen equally to everyone. How can we come to appreciate and understand these very different histories that you all are working in and talking about? And I wonder, are there, are there very specific? Can we make comparisons? Is that a fair thing to do? Or how would you think about the politics of race and slavery? What kind of lessons can we take away from that? I think these are specific stories, okay, histories. Uh, and my point's more or less like the old Eric Williams' point on, on his uh, idea on, on the thesis of functional racism. Capitalists are, in one sense, you can say colorblind. So they are going to mobilize and explore any kind of labors at their disposal, regardless of their race. But on the other hand, capitalists always play the card of racial management to achieve their goals. So I'm trying to just to point this, uh, it's how I read this thesis of how capitalism and slavery have played in both directions throughout history. But I think, again, these are always specific histories, okay? And there's a ter tremendous book that was published two years ago in, in Brazil, unfortunately only in Portuguese, by a, a U.S. anthropologist who works there, Carl Monsman, called in Portuguese, Reprodução do Racismo, more or less like Reproduction of Racism. And it's a tremendous book. Why? Because he's analyzing the crisis of slavery in Brazil, okay? And, and, and now I'm adding, so the crisis of slavery produced by U.S. civil war, that's not his argument, it's my argument, okay? But anyway, and then planters, the frontiers, were desperately searching for an alternative for slavery, okay? In racial and non-racial terms. So they tried with coolies, didn't work because at that point British imperialism in China was uh, blocking that, that option for Brazil. There are a lot of racist arguments. No, we don't want these yellow laborers here, okay, because we must get out of 
the African heritage. But they were desperate, the planters were desperately searching for any kind of dispossessable laborers within the world market to work on their uh, land frontiers. And then finally they got the Italian solution. Okay? So the massive Italian migration that started to uh, uh, arrive in Brazil in the very uh, last years of the slavery crisis. And Italians working side by side, more or less like the Mississippi Delta. There was an experience like that uh, during reconstruction time. But what happened in Brazil was this massive, massive subsided, uh, subsided migration by the state, by the planters themselves, in order to substitute uh, uh, Italians for, for the, the slaves. What is amazing about this book is that there wasn't actually a, a racial uh, choice by the planters in order to choose Italians. Because for the planters, Italians were actually non-white people. Okay, that's the point. So they were looking for Germans or, or Scandinavians, but not the Italian one. It was the Mediterranean heritage that they really wanted to avoid. The whole point, we're talking about the Iberian, so Portuguese people. Okay? And then once these Italians got into the frontier, and that's the very story of my family, okay, working in the plantations and so on. Immediately, the whole slave heritage started to operate in the very old sense of reproducing racism as a way of racial management and how to control labor. So there was a, a, a kind of internalization uh, in the Italian migrants of very values of racism that informed former planters, okay. And it's a fantastic ethnographic work because he shows that Italians, that first Italians that arrived, they weren't uh, what we call a racist uh, at all, because they didn't have the you know, discontent with, with African American people and so on. But through the very operation of the plantation economy, they started to, to incorporate the very same values of their patrons. So again, these are very specific histories, and, and I will keep. Uh, for this specific topic, William's argument on place of functional racism for capitalism. Yeah, and I, I think I think that's a fascinating story, and I, I guess I've seen something similar in the sense of the kind of the morphings of the different positions that people occupy. So again, in the Asian plantation context where I'm working, you know, the indentured workers who were brought in from other Asian countries, from from China and then from Java, when they arrived in these plantations in Sumatra in the 1870s, they were regarded as utterly um, pitiful by the local indigenous population because they were seen as, I mean, the word coolie is a is a rootless person who just works for someone else under appalling conditions. So the locals see themselves as superior to the plantation coolies, and the coolies, given a chance, would abscond and join the local population, try to farm independently or work for local farmers for better wages. But now, a hundred years later, the locals are now landless and would like to work at the plantation but are not hired because the planters still prefer migrants and bring in Indonesians from other islands who see themselves as the hard-working, you know, the tough guys who are going to do this plantation work and get good wages, whereas they see the natives on the spot as lazy. So, you know, these, these are all inter-Asian movements, and they're not racially constant over time, right? It's sort of the, the, who is the privileged, who is the despised, who's the pitiful, who is understood to be lazy or hard-working, 
these categories um, shift. There's um, continual work of distinction, but it's not consistent which group you know, will occupy what position. But one of the most shocking things, which has, does seem to be constant, is the absorption of the colonial posture towards plantation workers. So the plantation managers, who are now all Indonesian, basically act Dutch. You know, they, uh, and, they, and people describe them as that. They say, oh, he's got the colonial in him. Because they boss people around, you know, they expect people to not stand, but you know, to crouch in front of them. And all of these ways of expressing kind of physical subservience, which have just been adopted by the Indonesian plantation managers. I think the, the way that race works through these different positionings and morphings I mean, that's part of the story. These are not fixed. But as you say, they're always in operation. Some form of distinction is always being made. The question is what form, by whom and for what purpose? What's it enabling? So for me, in thinking about the relationship between race and slavery and, and asking the question, where are the opportunities to learn something? One, I want to say I'm, I'm grateful to see the conversations around 1619 really taken seriously by some of us and elevating the importance of a reparations discussion um, as a part of that. Uh, you know, we've heard the numbers, um, 1910, 14 million acres were owned by black folks, and we're now to 1.4% of land uh, products coming from black farmers in the U.S. And I think the, um, the part that I like to pay attention to is the, around agroecology and movements. I feel like movements, um, thanks to Internet and other mechanisms, are allowing us to create food strategies um, that are more sustainable, community and environmentally sustainable, but also uh, sharing ideas around ways to resist, how do we resist, what's the language of resistance, and then organizing in, in those contexts. So while we do, you know, we look forest we feel that there's a lot, a lot of loss that's taking place. If we look at the leaf, we can see how one leaf is influencing other leaves. And, and we're cheering for the leaves, <laughs> really cheering for those who are organizing movements and seeing this relationship as an opportunity to, to speak up, to stand out, and to be in solidarity with other folks in other lands, given our shared histories. I want to ask about the idea of the plantation scene coming off of this discussion. Because the theme of our Sawyer Seminar is, of course, interrogating the plantation scene. And I'm curious to hear what you think of the utility of the concept. It's been critiqued for not engaging with histories of, particularly in the U.S. context, America's black scholarship on the plantation life. What is the utility of it? Is it useful? Um, I'll admit the first time I heard the word, I heard the u word used in a contemporary sense, plantational scene, I was sort of like, well, wow, who, who, who would do that? <laughs> right, right. I get it, right. But for those of us that are descendants of enslaved Africans, to label something in that particular sense, it sort of made me feel like they did not ask community members, how do you feel when you hear this? Now, I will admit that the farmers in the South, um, generational farmers, Mr. Ben Burkett, uh, fourth generation black farmer, uses the word plantation. So I don't know if that's a northern black thing, but to use the phrase without any explanation, it, it's not self-explanatory, which I think is part of the problem, right? So as someone who considers myself an academic and an activist, I want folks to read the words 
and to hear what it means without needing to pull out or to read 15 pages. You know what I mean? So, so for me, it's important for people to see it, for you to understand it, and hopefully have a visceral response. My visceral response was not, right? Um, I, I think that it illustrates a disconnect between those of us in the academy creating concepts that are important packages, right? They're, they're important to help us convey a lot with a little, um, but also making sure that the way we do that doesn't, is, is, is clear and, and is helpful and useful. Yeah, so I also thought about, well, what would this mean in Indonesia, you know, which is the current, by far, the largest frontier of plantation expansion. And what's interesting is that most Indonesians have never seen a plantation and don't live near one and never think about them. So, um, you know, plantations are still kind of out of sight and out of mind, even in a country which is, you know, the host, because it's a big place and they're in out-of-the-way corners of it, right? So I don't think it's a, it's not a term which would have a sort of a local resonance. People in Indonesia think they're living in the era of the city and, you know, the internet and modernity. They don't think they're living in an era of the plantation, even though, Many of their countrymen are, but they're other folks out of sight, out of mind. So I don't, I don't know that it would work sort of as an imic term, really. But the other thing I was thinking about, well, what's its polemical value? And, uh, in obviously in a very different context than you're living and working. But one potential benefit of it would be to think, uh, so for example, you know, palm oil is in half of all the products what we buy in the supermarket, in food, in soaps, detergents, like it's half of the products you buy every week has it. But whoever thinks about where it comes from and how it's grown and who grows it and under what conditions do they live and what's sustaining to the land, etc., etc. So if it serves as a sort of reminder, you know, every item here, this piece of plastic, is industrial plastic, is industrial water, it's industrial paper. Like, all of this actually comes from some form of plantation, right? Plantation, forestry, and we are seldom forced to think about the industrial conditions of everything, you know, that we consume. So, you know, if it has that polemical value, but as you say, that's like 15 pages in before, you know, it would take a while to explain why that's a useful way of thinking about the contemporary era to be aware of the basis, the material and the human basis on which we live our comfortable lives, it takes some doing. So uh, I have more or less the same reaction as, as, as Monica, but, uh, but my first reaction when I, I heard this concept was when I was invited for this happening. Okay? And, and so what? Uh, strange word, strange <laughs> concept. So let's try figure out what is this. And so what I did was I did my homework, okay? So I went to the, the Anthropocene uh, debate that happened in Denmark. Yeah, if I'm not wrong, that's the first time where, where, uh, when the concept was uh, showed up in the discussion. And Donna, Harry, and Singh, who were here, yeah, uh, launched the idea. And it, to me, it shows clearly that it was an indirect outcome of the so-called new history of capitalism that's going on here in the U.S. right now. Merging that in a creative way uh, into the core problem of our global crisis, which is the Anthropocene. That's a creative way of 
putting side by side, merging together uh, two distinct discourses, public discourses, which actually academic discourses, trying to be innovative and at the same time engage, uh, with a clear engagement with the, with the present. So there's a lot of benefits with the concept. Especially the amplification of a debate that tends to be narrow. I'm thinking about slave and capitalism debate. Despite the already huge audiences that it has already reached. So thinking about the whole discussion on 1690 and, 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 and papers that are showing up, newspaper articles and so on and so forth. But there's a lot of drawbacks as well. And I would like to talk more about these drawbacks uh, right now. And again, it seems to me that the concept has a problem with the absence of historical specificity, of uh, the risk of being just another level destitute of real historical content. And I'm reading, I'm being really harsh, but I think that's the very idea of this this uh, roundtable discussion, the, the whole uh, seminar. What I'm do, uh, saying that. So I, now I'm going to recover part of my my uh, ongoing discussions with my colleagues and friends of the history and capitalism. So um, I get along pretty well with Ed Baptist, uh, Walter Johnson, and 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 so we are part of the same crew discussing these 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 things. And the whole problem is that with this recovery of slavery and capitalism, there's a, a tendency. I'm not saying that they do that, okay? But there's a tendency to treat capitalism and slavery as given, immutable uh, relations and forces that do not change throughout history. And my whole point is to treat capitalism as a historical relation. So take, pay, pay attention to what Wallerstein, Narigi, Brodel, all these guys uh, for a long time uh, call attention to the very historical character of capitalism. So capitalism changes throughout history. It has a, a, a core content, accumulation as an end in itself, finance and so on. So we can have, we have can have different definitions of capitalism. But it's important to call attention to the very story of how these relations change through time. And the very same thing happens with slavery. So you have slavery in the Roman world, the classic world, but it's not the same slavery as the colonial slavery, and the 19th century slavery is different from the colonial slavery. So to treat these relations uh, is important. And then we come to the, uh, the point the plantation also should be treated as a historical relation. So the plantation is not always the same. There's this famous book by Benitez Rojo, Repeating Island, and the very title, I think, is uh, has a problem. But I'm, I'm using it as an example. So when you, you, you think about the plantation, think about these immutable characters, features, that repeats, repeat themselves throughout history. And this is not the point. You should treat plantation as a historical relation that uh, has common features, but it's changing every time. And, and one way of to, 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 to grasp this point is to treat the plantation through a theory of historical time, multiple historical time, through these multiple layers of time. And there's another point also that I would like to, to, to state. World economy based on colonialism and the compulsory racialized labor of colonial subjects was not exclusively based on the plantation. Capitalism as a bundle of relations was more than colonialism. Colonialism was crucial. We all agree on that. But capitalism is more than that. And we should pay attention to this specificity. So we can, we must keep the idea of the uh, plantation scene as food for thought 
if you see the, in the plantation, the first global move on the process of turning nature and human beings into commodity of a capitalist world economy. So that's my first intervention. So how it's possible to put Poland in this conversation with, if we think uh, the plantation. So the, the privatization of land happening not in Europe first, but in the colonies, and then being, being brought back to the metropole. But again, I will tell you we should keep history in the front line. The plantation was not always the same. For me, there's a clear, clear divide between the pre-industrial colonial plantation, which include the 18th century Caribbean sugar plantations, which actually were pre-industrial, regardless labor management strategies that were employed and so on, and industrial plantation after the 19th century. And if labor is it's, it cr at the cost of the, the plantation, labor changes, as well the, as the world economy to which the plantation belongs. Okay? So that's my, my, my point with the plantation scene. It's a good provocation, but we should be careful about that. Okay, fair enough. I think we have time for one more question before we open it up, and so I'll do this as kind of lightning round. We often try to close these roundtables with a question about hope to leave us with a sense of optimism. Monica, that's really fundamental, I think, for your work. But instead of asking each of you about hope, I want to ask about politics, because I think it's important to combine hope with action. And so in North America right now, there are significant movements for the decolonization of indigenous lands and reparations for generations of theft from black families. And so I'm wondering what kinds of politics, and I don't necessarily mean big P electoral politics, what, what's necessary to create the justice that we were talking about earlier on? How can we make some steps to go there? I'm living under the nightmare of Bolsonaro, okay? And... <laughs> Talk about hope right now, it's quite difficult for me. But uh, anyway, I will keep the big politics. I think big politics is the, 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 the front line because we are dealing with resources and so on. And what uh, Tanya's uh, uh, work shows us is that how big politics is important to resistance, to no, and also to the power of the capitalists. So I would like to hear uh, from you both uh, on that, but I think we should keep, you know, the politics in the front line of our discussions. We keep actually talking about state and, 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 and all that. I think anybody who's paying attention is really sort of afraid of the conversations politically. So I, I think a part of the, the conversation around how land, access to land, um, and, and just the relationship of land, I often use the phrase land, food, and freedom as a part of what I hear movements talking about. But before I get to the, the happy part, uh, I do want to just sort of uh, acknowledge just um, this, this that land has been for many has we have been disallowed the opportunity to connect to land, and so um, it's been various forms of r removal and dispossession, and even in contemporary examples of land grabs, and you know folks use the word gentrification. One of my farmers told me to look up the word gentry, and I stopped using gentrification. Um, but these are all acts of violence. Let's be clear, the, these are acts of violence. And so for the organizations that I've studied and the ones with whom I work, this relationship to land is essential as a part of a, a freedom strategy. And I will just 
briefly, if, if I have, uh, just sort of um, a part of the, um, the work of uh, the National Black Food and Justice Alliance really sort of sees land as liberation. I mean, we could talk about conversations around free the land and what does that mean. It means that uh, black folks want a space that's free for, it's like a safe space. Uh, how do we, you know, how, how can we carve out a piece of this so that we can speak freely, live freely, and come up with strategies around um, self-determination and self-reliance? But the National Black Food and Justice uh, Alliance uh, talks about their relationship to land. Uh, it says, historically affirmed leaders like Malcolm X, land has been the root of dom- dominion and as such, the root of revolution and self-determination. Dispossess- displacement pre- and post-colonialism continues to deracinate our ability to take root, reclaim, liberate, exploited land, and call it home. Our connection to, relationship with, and access to land is an essential source of our healing, power, and ultimately our liberation. As land-based indigenous people, black communities have a deep connection to the earth with land as a source of spiritual, economic, cultural, and communal grounding. We work to build healthy, ecologically sound connections to the land in all its manifestations. And that's the work that gives me hope. Yeah, as usual, I'm not very hopeful. <laughs> you know, it's really hard because you know, you're, you're dealing with it, you know, context of kind of reclaiming, reparation, etc. And you know, I'm working in a context where this dispossession is happening now. It's current, it's ongoing, it's rapid, it's vast. And so, it's one thing to kind of think about how you could reconstitute and reclaim. And I'm trying to figure out how could you stop the train so that you know. There's already so much that's taking place, but how do you stop more and more and more of it? And that really comes down to, you know, the equation of land, labor, and capital. Like, you know, under what political conditions is land so cheap, you know, or virtually free to the plantation corporation? That's a, actually, it's a domestic political problem to do with the, the, the de-recognition of customary land rights. And you have to say, under what conditions is labor so cheap? The plantations are so profitable. And that has to do with, again, a domestic configuration in which there are um, no significant unions, uh, no protection for workers. So, I mean, the hope, it's sort of a weird thing, but, you know, some Malaysian plantation companies have, I, I was invited to Peru last year, and, you know, some Malaysian companies set up in the middle of the Amazon, and I was thinking, Wow, I wonder why. Because, um, you know, the infrastructure is enormous to get anything out of the Peruvian Amazon to the coast, you can imagine. But secondly, no Peruvian Amazonian will work for $2 a day. And if that is, coming back to your point about, you know, the global competition, if that's the price of labor established by the horrendously cheap labor in Indonesia, it's awful for Indonesia, but most of the world is probably safe because it won't, these plantations will not be profitable. They will not be able to compete unless they have this unique configuration of horrendously cheap land, cheap labor, and a disempowered population. It's a really desperate situation, and it's really hard to see how you change that configuration. Okay, well, let's, on that note, open it up to <laughs> questions from the audience. <laughs> Thank you all very much. That was Tanya Murray Lee, Rafael Marchese, Monica White, and Elizabeth Hennessy in conversation. Tanya Murray Lee is professor of anthropology at the University of Toronto. She is the author or editor of five books and is currently working on her sixth, a collaborative ethnography of oil palm plantations in Indonesia. 
Rafael Marquese is professor of history at the Universidad de Sao Paulo. He recently published the co-authored book Slavery and Politics, Brazil and Cuba, 1790-1850, and is currently working on a comparative history of environment and slavery in Suriname and Saint-Domingue in the 18th century. Monica White is Associate Professor of Environmental Justice at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her book, Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance and the Black Freedom Movement, was published in January 2019 by the University of North Carolina Press. Elizabeth Hennessy is Assistant Professor of Global Environmental History at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her first book, On the Backs of Tortoises, Darwin, the Galapagos, and the Fate of an Evolutionary Eden, was published in October 2019 with Yale University Press. EdgeFX would like to thank them for their assistance in preparing this podcast episode and accompanying digital materials for publication, as well as the organizers of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Sawyer Seminar interrogating the Plantationocene. Learn more about the Plantationocene Seminar's past and future events at their website, humanities.wisc.edu slash research slash plantationocene, and check out all of the EdgeFX pieces and podcasts in the Plantationocene series at edgefx.net. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Nicole Bennett, Addie Hopes, Carly Griffith, and me, Laura Perry. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to Edge Effects wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review or tell a friend about it. That really helps us connect with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net.